Good morning. It's Thursday, December 5th, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, a 24-7 sports podcast dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news. I'm Connor Tapp, and we've got Brandon Huffman on the show today talking about how Oregon and Utah built their rosters as we gear up for a tremendously consequential Pac-12 title game on Friday night. But first, I want to get out one last reminder that if you're in the Atlanta area on Friday, we're doing a live taping of the College Football Daily at Pandora's offices in Midtown. Doors open at 5. Show starts at 5.30. We'll have a panel discussion with Rusty Mansell and Shay Dixon from our Georgia and LSU sites. And we'll also have a special appearance from former Georgia All-American linebacker Rennie Curran. It's free to enter, and BYOB, just use the link in today's show notes to RSVP, and you'll get an email that will give you the barcode you need to get into the building. Again, it's 5.30 p.m. Friday at Pandora's offices in Midtown. We'd love to see you there. All right, with that out of the way, let's talk to Brandon Huffman. Since 2015, the Pac-12 has scored just seven points in the college football playoff. The conference has been shut out of the last two playoffs altogether and is in very real danger of missing out for a third year in a row. If the Pac-12 is going to be represented in this year's Final Four, Utah needs to beat Oregon in the conference title game on Friday night, and it probably wouldn't hurt for them to do it pretty convincingly as they'll need to keep at bay the Big 12 title winner and potentially an LSU team that loses to Georgia. So there's a lot at stake on Friday night in Santa Clara, and going into it, we wanted to make sure you guys understand a little bit more about how these two teams got here and the roles that they inhabit in the Pac-12 recruiting ecosystem. So to help us do that, we're bringing in 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Editor, Brandon Huffman. Hi, Brandon. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Connor. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so if you look at Utah's 24-7 Sports team talent composite, they're at number 47. That's compared to Oregon at number 17. And the current top four in the playoff rankings are 2, 3, 5, and 9. And But th- despite what people like Paul Feinbaum might say, I think it's pretty obvious that Utah is playing at a level worthy of serious consideration for the number four seed in the playoff. I mean, they're blowing teams out. They're, to me, passing the eye test, so it doesn't seem like something that's especially fluky. So how do you make sense of how Utah has been able to outperform its talent level as defined by the recruiting rankings that you know we make on such a regular basis? And is there anything unique about this current group of players that has allowed them to build on, you know, constant steady success under Kyle Whittingham and take what appears to have been a pretty significant step forward? Well, I think you just said the right name, Kyle Whittingham. I mean, that's been the biggest reason why this group has had success. It's been the evaluation that Kyle Whittingham and his staff have made as these guys as high school recruits, but also how they fit into Utah's scheme offensively, how they fit into their scheme defensively. And I think that, you know, you you look at, Kyle Winningham, his run at Utah, you know, he, he took over for Urban Meyer coming off their Fiesta Bowl when they were the original BCS buster and then 
four years later, took his own unbeaten team to the BCS with Utah going to the Sugar Bowl. And they were able to sustain that success after the Sugar Bowl for a few years to then get into the Pac-12. And so after they went to a bowl that first year in the Pac-12, they still had kind of Mountain West level recruits. But then he spent the next couple of years really building that roster with guys that could compete in the Pac-12 and consistently compete in the Pac-12. And, you know, they're now on a run better than any school in the Pac-12 South. This is their sixth straight bowl game that they'll be going to under Kyle Woodham. No other team in the Pac-12 South has that kind of run. And it's because it took them a, a couple of years to really get that program to compete consistently in the Pac-12. But now they're recomputing nationally because he does such a good job of evaluating guys that aren't necessarily in their footprint, aren't necessarily in their backyard. He goes down to Florida to get Zach Moss and Tyler Huntley. He goes out to California to get a guy like Jalen Johnson. You know, he, he gets players from Texas. He gets players from the state of Utah, but they've done a really good job of maybe going after kids in parts of the country, in key parts of the country, where they're maybe being overlooked by the local schools, but they still want to play at a Power 5 program, gets them in, fits them in perfectly to their scheme, and he's got a very big attacking defense that's physical, he's got a physical offensive line, and you put that all together, and now you're seeing why, after all these years, they really are one of those teams that are the class of the Pac-12. Yeah, they clearly have a, a good a good thing going there, and I don't think you want to upset that too much. But if you, I wonder if now that Utah is at this level where it hasn't been before, where we're the last week of the season, we're talking about them getting into the college football playoff. Do you think at any point it becomes necessary for their recruiting to look like something we a little more traditionally associate with success? And do you think it's important for them to use this particular moment where they're having so much success on the field to kind of parlay that into, okay, well, now we're going to start recruiting at a little bit more of a, uh, you know, a traditional looking top 25 ish kind of looking class, or is that not as necessary? You know, I, I don't think it's necessary because it kind of strays from the footprint, you know, and from the from the blueprint that he's really put into place there. I think that, you know, sure, he would love like any other school in the top five to recruit elite blue chippers every year in five stars. But, you know, it took Dabo Swinney a couple of years to really get Clemson consistently into those highly rated recruiting classes. I think the difference is, is that a lot of kids in the state of Utah want to leave the state. And so while Kyle Whittingham has a strong group of players in his own backyard, and there's been those players throughout his career, Utah probably sees more players leave the state than any program in the Pac-12 in terms of losing guys in their own state to other Pac-12 schools because guys want to get out. So I think at the same time, that allows him to fill holes in other places. And so that's why he's going after maybe guys that are sort of a little bit overlooked, but are looking for a change of scenery themselves, going into Florida, going into California and getting guys that maybe want to get out of their own state. So I don't think he's going to stray from it because it's now clearly showing it works. You can have middle of the road rated recruiting classes, but if you develop them, you do a great job of evaluating them early on and then develop them once they get on campus, you could win and sustain that. And I thought it was fascinating this offseason when the late buzz coming in, in July and August was, you know, Utah could be the Pac-12 champion and a playoff 
contender. And I think a lot of people outside of the West thought that was ridiculous. That was crazy. There was no way. There was all the hype about Oregon in the offseason. There was the talk about Washington with Jacob Eason coming in. But if you've been paying attention to what Kyle Whittingham has done, you knew that schematically, you knew that just development-wise and coaching-wise, they were going to have a chance. And one thing he does really well, too, is he gets a lot of his guys to stay for their last years. He doesn't lose as many guys to the NFL like a lot of other schools may do. So he's allowed, you know, that allows him the freedom and the flexibility to develop some of these younger guys so they're not thrown into the fire until they're ready. And then by their third year, fourth year, they're now stepping in for a guy who was a fifth year senior and they're already physically ready to keep, you know, themselves contending because they've got that ability, they've got that development, they've got the size that he wants them at. And I don't think he's going to stray from what he's been doing. It may help him in recruiting in the future, but I I don't see them really setting out to just go and chase after a bunch of stars. I think they're going to continue to find what fits in best on Morgan Scali's defense and on Andy Ledwood's offense. So on the other side of the field is Oregon. And I think you could maybe make the opposite argument for them, which is that their on-field product is not quite yet commensurate with how well they've recruited under Mario Cristobal. What's your take on what he and his staff have been able to do that seems to have successfully elevated Oregon from a program that's like top 20, top 15 recruiting to now, it seems like the past couple of years, fringe top 10. I think a lot of it has to do with his time at Alabama, knowing that if you're going to be a contender nationally and you're, you don't necessarily, you know, obviously the difference is at Alabama, there's still is some great talent in the state of Alabama. There's not that type of talent in the state of Oregon. So you really have to recruit nationally. You really have to recruit regionally but you've got to be aggressive in recruiting and make your school marketable and desirable. And I think he walked into Oregon at a time where they were still, you know, three or four years coming off playing for a national championship. So there was still that Oregon name brand that there was still that buzz about Oregon. Marcus Mariota had won a Heisman Trophy. You know, there was still a lot of people talking about Oregon. It was the, the hot team out West from, you know, 2009 to about 2015. Uh, so I think he, he came into a situation where he didn't really have to sell Oregon all that much. Kids already knew Oregon. They remembered Oregon. They knew all of the buzz about it. But what he did is he really took control of developing good offensive linemen and, you know, going after a Panay Sewell was a huge one for him. Um, I, I think that, you know, going after elite offensive linemen, developing those elite offensive linemen made a big difference for what they were trying to do up front. And I think what really has helped Oregon is that they've already got that national buzz, but Cristobal had a national name. He brought in assistant coaches that could recruit nationally. So you're going back into Florida, into Texas, into California. You're continuing to spread that Oregon gospel nationally. And then you got a player like Kayvon Thibodeau a year ago signing as a top five player in the country. You've got a player like Justin Herbert, who's a potential number one pick. You've got recruits buying in, but then you've got players that you're developing that are being talked about being quickly gone in the NFL draft. That's kind of the perfect combination for what he's been able to do. Do you see what Crystal Ball has been able to do at Oregon, specifically with an approach to recruiting, as something that other Pac-12 schools need to look at and maybe try to model themselves after? You know... I don't know. I think one of the things that Oregon does do is they offer a lot of players. And I think that's been one of the things that a lot of Pac-12 programs have kind of used maybe against them is, you know, how 
do you really need to offer 350 players? I don't know that you're going to see a lot of Pac-12 schools approach those numbers and offers. But what I think that Oregon does a really good job of is building buzz about their program. You know, they were one of the first programs to really market their coaches hitting the road when they would go on in-home visits or when they would go to evaluate during the evaluation period. They've done such a great job of marketing the program and especially under Mario Cristobal. I think there's models of what they've done. There's things that they've done that I think a lot of Pac-12 schools and national programs will, will try to copy and just, just you know, the, the presence that they have on the road, the presence they have when a kid takes an unofficial visit. You know, one of the things you always hear when kids are talking about their unofficial to Oregon is when they get off the elevator, there's 50 coaches and staffers yelling and screaming and cheering for them as they start their unofficial visit. So you're already getting started on the right foot. So I think there's a lot of things that they do that really have raised the the impression of Oregon that have really raised the the attraction to Oregon. Uh, but then there's other approaches like offering so many guys. And then, you know, maybe those guys that they offer end up signing with the Division II program. You know, they got an offer early on, but it's probably not a committable offer. I don't know that that's always great, but I mean, it's working because Oregon is signing elite classes. And so they're just building enough buzz where that Oregon offer is going to become one that's coveted. And so while they offer 300, they know they're still only going to sell 25 or sign 25. They still have to be selective in who they actually take a commitment from, but you're getting 300 kids to think, I got an offer from Oregon. Now I'm going to go check out the school. You're going to get to see how serious that kid is about your school when you offered, when he comes to campus to visit. So as the Pac-12 and people who care about the Pac-12 have kind of been doing a self-assessment about how the conference as a whole has managed to fall toward the back of the pack of the Power Five conferences, one of the themes that seems to keep coming up is the high school talent drain within the Pac-12 footprint, with Oregon possibly being uh, an example of a couple of exceptions in the conference, uh, where you know many of the best players from the region are not electing to go to schools in the Pac-12, but heading east oftentimes. And I, I wonder how serious of a concern you perceive that to be, and then whether you think Utah getting into the playoff this year uh, could potentially have a role or be important in reversing or slowing that trend a bit. You know, it's it's hard to say if that trend will continue, you know, for the Pac-12 schools, the West Coast schools, if that will end. I think, you know, you look at this year and you've got DJ Ungagalele and Bryce Young, the, the two of the best quarterbacks to ever come out of the West and out of Southern California at a school that schools that have sent quarterbacks to USC and UCLA historically, and they're going to Alabama and Clemson. You've got Justin Flo, who's looking to leave the region and he's got the Clemson and Miamis and the Georgias of the world. You've got Keely Ringo, you've got uh, Darnell Washington, you've got Kendall Milton, G. Scott, and so many of these kids are leaving and I think what that's doing is that's setting precedent for the next few classes that I too can leave and so I think that you know even if Utah or Oregon whoever wins the Pac-12 even if they win their their bowl game or if Utah gets into the playoff and, and wins I still think that this is a going to be a two or three year process of the Pac-12 really needing to raise their game consistently and consistently playing in the playoff to get those kids to leave or to keep those kids from leaving. I think one thing about the Pac-12 region and the, the footprint is the West Coast has always had more players leave the region than I think any other region in the country. Kids have long felt 
felt it was okay to go to the Midwest to go to school, go down in the Southeast to go to school, uh, you know, to go to the Atlantic part of the country. I think West Coast kids in, in general have always been much more open to that. But now you're seeing more and more of the elite kids wanted to do that. And so, you know, maybe it'll take USC getting their act together and, you know, putting their program back to where it was under Pete Carroll to keep those West Coast kids from leaving. But right now, I think that the we're just at the tip of the iceberg of what West Coast kids are, are wanting to do to leave. And that's why you're seeing Clemson coming all the way out West to get Joe Nagata one year, DJ the next year, really targeting Emeka Egbuka the year after that. You know, they have their own region that they could stay in, but they come West for some key guys. Georgia doing the same. Alabama continue to do what they've done under Nick Saban. I think you're seeing more national programs coming out West because they know those West Coast kids are open to leaving. And I think we're just starting to see the beginning of, of this momentum. I don't think it's going to be a quick fix for the Pac-12. This is going to be a, a multi-year thing that they've got to get their act straight completely together as a conference to keep that from happening again. All right. Brandon Huffman is a national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports and host of the West of the Rest podcast, which he co-hosts with Blair Angulo, focused on West Coast recruiting. But I don't, I don't think you need to be from that region or a fan of a college team in that region to find uh, what they have to say very informative and interesting. You can find Brandon on Twitter at Brandon Huffman, and you can find West of the Rest wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, Brandon. Anytime, Connor. Thank you. The College Football Daily will be right back. According to a report by Yahoo Sports, Clay Helton will return as USC's head coach for the 2020 football season. In a memo obtained by Yahoo, new USC Athletics Director Mike Bone wrote, quote, Heading into 2020, Coach Helton and I will work together to take a hard look at all aspects of the football enterprise and will make the tough decisions necessary to compete at a championship level. Helton won 21 games in his first two full seasons as USC's head coach, compared to 13 total wins in 2018 and 2019, although the Trojans ended up coming up just one game short of winning the Pac-12 South this year. Colorado State fired head coach Mike Bobo after five seasons, which yielded an overall record of 28-35. Bobo was 7-5 during his first three seasons in Fort Collins, but the last two years saw the Rams slip to records of 3-9 and 4-8. And Bobo spent 15 years at Georgia as an assistant coach. He also played there and included eight years as an offensive coordinator. He could be a strong candidate to return to that role, offensive coordinator, at a bigger school than Colorado State. Finally today, the Penn State Board of Trustees has scheduled a special meeting of its Committee on Compensation for this Friday, December the 6th. The possible reason for the meeting would be the approval of a raise in contract extension for James Franklin, who spent much of the past week entertaining interest from Florida State. That's going to do it for today's episode of the College Football Daily. If you appreciate what we're doing, please express your support by leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. For Trey Scott, Brandon Huffman, and our producer, Tani Levitt, I'm Connor Tapp, and we'll see you on Friday morning for the next episode of the College Football Daily. 